Real quickly, we have an interview on this week's show. The Skype is not so great, but it's a fun interview with a really funny lady who we're really glad to have as our first guest. So listen up. All right. Everybody ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, this is Prefer Not To, weekly sometime cocktail hour. Always cocktail hour. With your host, Josh and Kate. As should be disappointingly obvious by now, there is no way around it. I am not Kate. And I'm not Josh. Every week, Kate and I enjoy a new cocktail, and we talk about some movie or other that we happen to have watched that week. And by happened, I mean by design for the show. <laughs> Uh, but unlike other weeks, and hoping, hopefully, like weeks to come, we have a guest today, uh, because why not? And I cannot think of a better or more entertaining person to start doing guests with than our guest today, Sarah Benincasa. Hello! Hello, hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here um, via the magic of Skype from Toluca Lake, California, which is part of the city of Los Angeles. Uh, I have been to Los Angeles once and had only favorable impressions, which I am given to understand is the best way to do it. I really enjoy it very, very much. Um, I am moving shortly to back to Brooklyn, but I'm having a good time. Cool. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you did live in Brooklyn. That was in the book. Did I did once upon a time. Uh, Sarah is a comic, a writer, a podcaster, and she is super funny, as you guys can already tell. To boot. Yeah. <laughs> she is the author of a memoir that I love, Agora Fabulous, that touches on her life with anxiety disorders, and a young adult novel, Great, which is a gay-themed retelling of The Great Gatsby, uh, which I'm told is a book by some hack or other. Yes. So, yeah. and, and just by way of explanation, you know how in, uh, in an evening of drinking, uh, there's that stage where you are drunk enough to have ideas that are uh, of dubious merit, uh, but you are sober enough to formulate workable plans to execute those ideas. Yeah, I try to live my life that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's how uh, I ended up sending you a message the other night. Uh, I had noticed while I was looking, uh, checking out my Twitter feed that you were going to be in our neck of the woods, as you mentioned, doing a couple of shows, one at Geeksboro in Greensboro on October 13th, and before that, one in Asheville at Malaprop's Bookstore on October 8th, which bracket appearances at your alma mater, see, I did my homework, uh, Warren Wilson College, which we have talked about on the show before, actually. That was the first time we mentioned you on the show. Uh, We had a thing about Warren Wilson. I love Warren Wilson. I am such a fan of Warren Wilson and I love going back there. And that was what I was trying to explain it to Kate and I think I did a very poor job of explaining the system where they have the volunteering and the work then this yeah it's basically a communal hippie summer camp with college classes Um, so everybody on campus is put in a work crew and everyone has to work at least 15 hours a week on that crew in addition to carrying the normal course load that a college student would so even though i say hippie summer camp very lovingly you actually do quite a bit of hard work and there are i believe 110 work crews everything from working on the working in admissions to uh you know climbing 50 foot trees and sawing off limbs and the special the special um I don't know, tree division of the landscaping crew. There's also, it's an 1,100-acre campus with a 300-acre organic farm with livestock, and so there's a farm crew, and um, on campus the students eat, uh, a lot of the food that they eat is actually produced by the farm itself, and so there's just a lot. It's wonderful. You can, you know, no, it, it, painter, it, an electrician, a locksmith, whatever you want. I, I think that if I were to accidentally have a child that I were forced to provide for, uh, that's one of the places I would be happy to spend money to send them. No, yeah, I would love to send my kid to Wilson. It's also reasonably priced compared to most four-year private liberal arts schools. I used to work in admissions. Can you tell? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Plus, you know, hippies, like you mentioned the thing about hardworking hippies, and, and I don't know if this is your experience, but once uh, hippies, like, decide to work on something – like, I think the, the barrier is just getting over that first, like, I want to do something. Because then after that, like, they can become super obsessive and put tons of work into things. At least oh, in my yeah. experience. It's just like, you know, it's that idea of really committing to things that I think is the, uh, at least in my experience. 
Yeah, hippies are incredibly determined. I mean, you do get stoner slackers who just sort of um, want to lay back, but you get that in any subculture. Like there are a lot of part of the the sort of hippie ethos and hippie movement was um, was to affect social change and to do that through work. And so the Warren Wilson has a, a history as a Presbyterian work college. Um, and so that sort of presby- very pre- Presbyterian tradition of work as service to society and to oneself and to God and everything is, is very much woven in. So it, it's just fantastic. I mean, I had a great experience there. It took me a while to graduate. Um, I went to a bunch of colleges, but that was, you know, it was a great one and uh, I love it. And I definitely, it feels like home whenever I go back there. So I'm doing a bunch of bunch of shows there yeah if folks have not read uh, agora fabulous which i think i've recommended on the show before but you go, have go, go give it a look it's um as, as someone who has uh, addressed these issues of, of crippling overwhelming anxiety it is uh, one of those where you hear a voice of someone that you go well, i know that person uh, has knows things that i know yeah where you i mean hopefully the, the aim in writing the book was to create something that people would you know i don't know man like that people would relate to and not be embarrassed by and i mean i what i tried to do in the book was to put myself out there and and this is what i try to do in a lot of my writing like i I write for playboy.com as well and i write for jezebel and i write for different places um a lot of times i try to put myself out there and put my own limitations and flaws on display to the extent that I feel comfortable and that it feels safe and sometimes pushing a little past that extent and, um, and, and hoping that it'll help other people because it's a, it's a sort of an armchair activism kind of thing for me. And, um, so yeah, that's why, I mean, I share a lot of stories in there. Some of them are pretty gross. No, I remember you talking about sort of trying to figure out where that boundary was on, um, on Paul Go Martin's show. Uh, where you guys had, yeah. which I loved that episode. Oh, great. Yeah, that was fun. We were in, we, we taped that episode in my, my little house in, um, I had a little house at the time in Highland Park. It was a little back house that was like um, on this wonderful property with lots of, um, lots of fantastic, like, butterflies everywhere and 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 shrubbery and lights and beautiful hanging lanterns and it was a really wonderful place to land when i was in los angeles um and um yeah that's the the mental is this mental illness happy hour yeah mental illness happy hour yeah i always want to say mental health happy hour but it's the mental illness happy hour yeah which is (laughs) another great podcast yeah and he goes on for like two hours i don't it, it, it is some impressive commitment to that show that he has it's Kind of oh, yeah, amazing. yeah. I mean, he really goes deep with people on that program. Yeah. I love the episode with you, and I love the uh, – when Maria Bamford was on it, obviously. It's just She's a classic. the best. <laughs> so, uh, as we mentioned, you're going to be back in this neck of the woods uh, sometime yeah. soon. How, how often do you get back here? Let's see. The last – it depends. Um, I try to get back at least once a year. For the past few years, I've been to North Carolina, I think, at least twice a year. Just like last year, I think I was there – I did a college. I was there another time. I don't know. You know, I think last year, 2013, I was probably there like two or three times. This year, it's, uh, again, it'll be like two or three times. I just love it. It's yeah. just so great. I would, I have it tattooed on my arm. I was going to say, I've seen your ink. Yeah, I've got my North Carolina State tattoo. And um, so I would really, you know, I would love to buy a house there sometime and, and be able to go there. Like Zach Galifianakis has his farm there. His which farm, is yeah. So yes, cool. he does. And I would love to be able to afford um, to have a house down there and, you know, hopefully in, in Asheville or in the area and whether or not I have land is sort of immaterial as long as there's enough land for the house itself to be on. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, Lewis Black has a condo down right downtown here. In Chapel Hill. I did not know that. That's fantastic. I just, wonderful. I wanted to go to Chapel Hill and I didn't get in. I lived in New Jersey and I applied as an out-of-state student and I did not get in. And I remember I was so disappointed. I was like, oh, but, but, um, and that's why years later when I was transferring from Emerson College to a new school, I looked in North Carolina and I realized I still couldn't get into Chapel Hill, but, um, I could probably get into a different school. So I got into, I got into UNC Asheville and to Warren Wilson and I visited Warren Wilson and I just loved it. And that's how I ended up in North Carolina. 
Oh, I remember that. Oh, no, the story I'm thinking of is when you were applying to a teacher's college and you yeah. had the, uh, the boyfriend who was insisting that you wouldn't get into Columbia. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he did insist. And he would have been right if teacher's college did not, uh, I don't know, some sort of voodoo magic took place. Um, I think the, I didn't have, really didn't have the grades for it, but I think it was because I did a year of service in AmeriCorps student mm-hmm. teaching in a public school. Her not, 20th anniversary today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, it's America, it's the big 20th anniversary celebration. They did it last week with, with Clinton and Barack Obama. And so, yeah, I was psyched about that. So, um, after I did AmeriCorps, so that be it a lesson to anyone who needs a gap year, or maybe their grades are aren't so great coming out of high school or college or whatever for the next step. Like doing AmeriCorps for a year in the field that you're interested in can be really helpful. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, old people always say this, but you know, you meet college graduates who are 21, 22, and they still like, don't know that much about the world. And you think, wouldn't, like you said, maybe a gap year just have done you so much good. Yeah. Somebody on Twitter told me that their kid is doing a gap year now, graduated high school 2014, and is now doing a gap year at AmeriCorps for work experience. Um, and I think that's so great because it can really help clarify your intentions with regard to your career. And, you know, I, I always wanted to be a teacher. I didn't get into any MFA programs. Um, I wanted to be a, a college professor and you have to generally have to have your MFA or be like a critically lauded author in order to do that or both. And, um, so I didn't, uh, get into any of those programs. So I did AmeriCorps and then I, um, went to graduate school for teaching and I really thought that I wanted to be uh, a, a teacher. And I actually, as it turns out now, I do teach um, online classes and sometimes in-person writing workshops through a company called Writing Pad here in Los Angeles. But um, when I was in grad school, I discovered stand-up comedy or it discovered me. And so I got into that and I realized that what I really wanted to do was my original dream of being a writer and um, that I would work just different day jobs to make money and uh, ask my family for incredible amounts of money over the course of my 20s uh, <laughs> that I still have not paid back. And but, you know, that's like that's standard now. That's not even something, you know, that's the way our economy is pretty much built is for people who are 25 and 26 still to be sort of in some way beholden to their parents. Yeah, Either that or in massive crushing amounts of debt. I mean, a lot of in, in Italy, it's sort of normal for young people to live at home and especially for young men to be just taken care of by their mothers until they find a wife. Like that's a gross generalization about the entire country, but like <laughs> sort of a cultural difference there. And you find that in other countries as well, where it's sort of a cultural difference that it's it's a bit normal for um, a young person to go to university and still live at home or to go to university and then come back. Um, and I think it has changed in, in our culture. It's getting to that place as well, where it's like becoming more and more normal for young people to return home just because the job market is shitty and college doesn't necessarily prepare you for the real world. Yeah, I think a, ju- a junky economy for a couple of years just gave everybody the elbow room like, you know, nobody is going to achieve in this world. So just take a deep breath and figure out what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that a school like Warren Wilson is so great because it provides training. It's really almost it provides like it can it can provide vocational training while you are actually doing your four year liberal arts school. So you get all those benefits combined. I mean, I, I wish that there are, there is a work college consortium of about eight schools in the country, I believe. And I wish there were more because that stuff is so, so, so important. Yeah. And when you think about it, like, you know, the effort that college kids put into, you know, frivolous stuff, any, I mean, like even, you know, hippies who go to other schools, they spend time, you know, building elaborate bongs or whatever, like yeah, the amount yeah. of work that you do on things that you love is still pretty high when you're in college. It's more a function of the time that you're there than than the classes yeah. or anything. Absolutely. I am. Um, and I know so many smart people from Wilson who now are who, you know, got such hands on training and are now working in those fields. I mean, I have a friend who was a locksmith who now is a uh, carpenter and woodworker. I have a friend who was on the baking crew and on the herb garden crew who now is running uh, an educational farm in Tennessee. Like they're, they're just, I mean, so many different stories. Like that. Isn't, that, isn't that a weird change? Because when I was growing up and I think I'm, I'm 41, so I'm roughly 10 years older than you, I think. No, I'm 30. I'm going to be 34 next. Okay. Year. Well, I was being generous then. 
but when I was growing up, like the standard sort of slight on someone was to call him like a mechanic. You know, that was your standard dumb guy. Ooh, he's just like a mechanic. And I can't think nowadays of someone I would, in my zombie apocalypse or whatever, would rather have on my team. Like, the smartest guys I know are people who know how to do things, which I realize now is just the dumbest thing that I could have possibly ever said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I know what you mean, because it's uh, real-world skills were looked down upon, I think, for, you know, in, in one sense, it was because or it is because among some folks it is because the leisure class uh, you know the higher classes are the ones who have time for leisure and have times to do things like read books and compose poetry and then give a lecture on it and like compose a ted talk and like whatever (laughs) i think think a lot of it also probably is the like the gi bill generation there was sort of that expectation all of a sudden that a lot more people were going to be going to college and doing white collar things than had before Absolutely. And that was seen as so completely important, like that you, you know, uh, my parents are in their late 50s. And so for them, it was really important that their kids go to college because it had been emphasized, at least on my dad's side, not on my mom's side. She was the first person in her family to go to college. But on my dad's side, it was emphasized very strongly that he should go to college. And so it was uh, for me to go to college was sort of, you know, it showed that they had done their job right. And now for me, I would be so stoked if my kid decided to be a plumber or, uh, you know, or uh, right. there's this huge move. Uh, I mean, a lot of kids who are really smart and eligible to go to great schools are just saying, you know, the debt is not worth it. I'm not going to waste my time. I'm going to learn something. I'm going to go. Maybe if I decide when I'm 25 or 30, I'll come back. To it. I think it was uh, was it Robert Reich last week who was like, kids, don't go to college. It's a waste of your money. It was someone oh, really so significant like that. that. I don't know who it was, but I am completely on board with that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. Like, go, go get training. Don't just, you know, go out into the world and go, oh, everything's going to be fine. Like, get training. If, you know, hey, man, if you want to be, uh, you know, if you want to be an actor and you feel like you would be better for getting some training and acting, that's cool. Like, if you want, that's fine. Um, uh, if you want to be a writer and you feel like you would be better for getting some training as a writer and taking classes, totally agree with that. Go for it. But if what you really want is to own your own business and it's something that you don't need to have an MBA for, skip that step and start your own business. Watch a bunch of Shark Tank, man. <laughs> no, I, either, I do. I absolutely believe in the power of, of schooling. But I, I sort of I think sort of a happy medium for me is community colleges. I love community colleges. I, I'm 100 percent with you there. I think largely because, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but you you don't find a lot of people at community college who are there as a path of least resistance. Exactly. People are there because they're most people who I meet at community college are there because they're really fucking trying. Like they're trying really hard to get it done. And a lot of times they have kids or they're taking care of an older parent or something like that. They have jobs. They're really committed to education. And that to me is the ideal model for education these days. Yeah, I don't. I don't no, you nobody ever made a mistake waiting a few years to go to college. Uh, uh-uh, absolutely not. And you think so when you come from a background where everybody's saying, "Oh my gosh, you have to go right now." No, I mean it was the same way. I grew up here in a college town. And it was just unthinkable that if you were able to go to a good school, you didn't. Oh yeah. Think, I don't think I knew anybody. I mean, I'm sure there were because you know, small sample size in my class. But yeah, I didn't think I knew anyone who didn't go straight to college who was able to go to college. Yeah, you're, I mean, it's a prestige thing, and it's just what's expected. I think a lot of times we do kind of what is expected uh, culturally, socially, whatever. And um, eventually, sometimes it, it turns out that those expectations were not ultimately helpful for us to achieve our goals. I mean, I definitely think if you want to be a writer, like if somebody wanted to do what I do and they want to be a writer, I would say, you know, write. Uh, going to writing school can be so good for you. It can be really great. Go to one that you can afford, though. Yeah, Don't go yeah. into debt for it. What you need to do the most is read and write in order to write, you know, be a writer and learn about the business and all that stuff. But I would also say if you do want to go to a four-year college, it is a wonderful experience and there's a lot of um, bonding that takes place and fun and all that stuff. But to me, I would pick a college based on the strength of its alumni association. And I would, I would actually advise kids, look at college. When you look at colleges, ask them about um, how many of their alumni donate 
and ask them about how involved alumni are and what fields the alumni are in and do they offer internships and different programs to help current students because I benefit so much as even I was at Emerson College for a few years but it's so strongly grounded in entertainment that I've benefited so much from spending a few years there out but out here with connections that I made there and you know Wilson I benefit further with alumni connections so it's not something I ever thought about as a teenager but really like look at what those people from that school do when they go into the real world and if that's the kind of stuff you want to do then go to that school and if not then don't worry about it Sounds good. So I would, did want to hit the tour uh, because you're mm-hmm. going to be here and explain what it was. I remember the day that you put it up, and uh, I don't. Was it in response to some event? I can't remember, but it was. It, you announced it right about at the time when things were looking very bad for young gay people, and I don't remember exactly when it was. Yeah. So the tour is called "This Tour Is So Gay," and I did a Kickstarter for it and raised fifteen thousand dollars from about three hundred backers from all over the place. And so um, the deal is that I come to, I go to your town and, uh, or a town near you, and I make some jokes and tell some stories and maybe sell some books. Sometimes the event, I, I tailor it to each particular town. So sometimes the event is at a bookstore and sometimes the event is at a place like Geeksboro in, um, in Greensboro. And so I, I, uh, I do my thing and I, I try to entertain people for approximately an hour. And uh, during that time, I either do a fundraiser, um, so take other people's money and then donate it to a local LGBTQ youth organization, or I make a donation myself. So, um, so far, LA was a fundraiser. Denver, I made the donation myself. Indianapolis, I made the donation myself. Seattle, I'm going to make the donation myself to a place called Lambert House. I still have to do that donation. And then in Greensboro, we are doing a fundraiser. And at Malaprops uh, in Asheville, it's just a free public event. And so I'll make a donation to a local group there. And the Greensboro event, I think you're given to the Quality NC Youth Organizing thing. Yes, yes, yes. I need to look up uh, the precise name. It's, um, oh, man, i got to look it up right now. That's fine. I know this by heart now. Uh, there's just so many cities on the tour. There's like, uh, I think, 17 cities that I'm hitting. So I get confused because sometimes the names of the organizations are pretty similar. Um, let me see here. Oh, and I'm doing San Francisco, actually. This, this show will probably go up after, but I'm doing San Francisco. And then I'm doing Chicago. And uh, I'm just going all over the place. Let me see. This tour is so gay. Greensboro, a benefit for Get Engaged NC Yay. Yeah. So before you go, because I know you're busy and I'm hugely grateful for you to come. Oh, of course. Um, I'm doing this tour so gay in Asheville at Malaprops Wednesday, October 8th at 7 p.m. Coming out monologues at Warren Wilson College Saturday, October 11th at 7 p.m. Homecoming Warren Wilson College Saturday, October 11th, 10 p.m. This tour is so gay. Greensboro benefit for getting engaged at NCU Monday, October 13th at 8 p.m. Woo! That is a crazy what five days in uh, the old North State. I'm really making some time. I'm yeah. trying to get her done. So uh, before before, because I know I asked you if you wanted to do a, a little with your would you rather, and you gratefully said yeah. Uh, you oh, yeah. Graciously said yes. I did want to remind you that the closest cheesecake factory to Greensboro is here in Durham. Fuck yeah, it's far away, but I would still go. <laughs> I'm just saying. I know there's one in Charlotte, but it's about six of one, half dozen of the other uh, for the one in Durham. So if you get your uh, Jake's for some Cheesecake Factory, give us a holler. The one in Durham is decorated with Egyptian motifs. Really? Yes, ma'am. Like, why, the, like, what, what concept designer just said, hey, Durham, you know what I think? Egypt. Like they were, they were well known for their reverence of uh, of, of cheesecake. Oh, I love Cheesecake Factory so very much. It is so glorious. I try to eat in local places and stay in like locally owned places and stay in locally owned places when I'm on tour. But let me just tell you something. If there's a Cheesecake Factory, I will go. I don't give a shit. Like I will go. <laughs> well, if you make it this way, I wish you both good local stuff. And the Cheesecake Factory. Oh, well, I just love, I mean, Crook's Corner is just the best. That is fantastic stuff. So many amazing places to go in. in, um, You got to go to Lantern. That's like world class. I love Lantern. 
I love Planter and I love their pastry chef, Monica. I yes. love I love their ownership. They are great. Lantern is a wonderful place. All right. So we're going to do Would You Rather and we're going to staple it at the end of the show for all those sad suckers who sit through the rest of the show. So Sarah was fun. Yes. I'm still completely baffled as to why she agreed to do the show, but I'm really grateful and very thankful that she did. What kind of demon rights did you perform to get her to agree to do that? Like, did you, I'm just curious, like what kind of pact you had to make with Pazuzu in order to make that happen? Uh, really, it was just um, like fashion tips. Oh, okay. For Pazuzu? For the... And like a new workout. The winged air demon on the go? Yeah, well, he's working his upper body, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I said, maybe work in the morning, do your upper body, and then do do your legs later in the day. Yeah. So, now we're going to get to the regular part of the show. Regular part <laughs> every of week, the show. <laughs> every week, Kate and I, as we said before, we sample a sh- uh, cocktail that we're unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one that we feel like exploring. We talk about the latest movie we've watched. Right now, we're watching some unfortunate sequels. Previously, we've watched number one movies of our lifetime or horrible disaster movies from the 1970s. Movies you forgot were number one. So, Kate, what cocktail are we drinking and what unfortunate or ill-advised sequel did we watch (laughs) this week? So we are drinking uh, the Algonquin cocktail, Mm -hmm. and we watched 2006's uh, Basic Instinct. Two. 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 Right. Sorry. So, what's in an uh, Algonquin? An Algonquin is rye whiskey, pineapple juice, and dry vermouth. And who is in an exorcist? Not an exorcist, too. God, it's still lingering with me. Uh, who is in a... It'll do that. <laughs> who is in a basic instinct, It's coming two? back. It's like shingles, like we said. It's Pazuzu shingles. Um, let's see. Who's in this? Sharon Stone, of course, reprising her role from the first basic instinct. Um, David Morrissey. David Toulis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indira Varma yeah, kind of shows I up for a little that, bit. Oh, yeah. and Hugh Dancy shows oh, right. up for like two scenes. Yeah. His, his auntie is Hugh. And... The joke does not work with anyone who is not Hugh Jackman. No, it doesn't. <laughs> um, but let's see. Some other bit players football like yeah so basically it's Sharon Stone and David Morrissey and with a little bit of David Toulis like peppered over them like a like a gently falling snowstorm <laughs> I don't know well before we hear the story of the Algonquin and whether or not it is related to the Native American tribe or the hotel mm-hmm. I'm going to suspect the hotel both really uh, we know as you know we have to do the standard disclaimers yes Standard disclaimer number one, neither Kate nor I is a cocktail expert. I think before we started the show, almost every cocktail I had had been from Jimmy's Woodlawn Tap at the corner of 55th and Woodlawn in Hyde Park. $2 gin and tonics mm-hmm. for an entire summer in 1994. And Kate, also not a mixed drink expert. Mm-mm. Likewise, we're not a movie expert. I think if I were given my druthers most days, I would just like to sit down and watch the Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. Kate, what's your go-to movie when you're wanting to feel things? What? Well, what do you mean? Feel things in a good way? Am Whatever. I sad and I'm trying to cheer myself up? Just, I, I, I'm not dead. I'm, I don't want to. I want to prove to myself I'm not a robot. Ooh, uh, I'm gonna go with an affair to remember. Yeah, it's a, that seems like a good one. You, you do feel things when you watch that. Yeah. Um. Generally, my like, I, I'm bored or like, you know, I'm. It's late at night and I can't go to sleep. I'll watch something like Hellraiser. Second disclaimer, alcoholism is a serious disease, not unlike, in honor of our guest, generalized anxiety disorder, or unwanted thoughts syndrome, which is a newer thing. But What is that? Trust me. It's when you think things you don't want to think. Isn't that just everybody living always? It's a version of anxiety disorders where you uh, have, b- believe me when I say you have just the bizarre thoughts that jump into your brain. Okay. Uh, so. Like zebras wearing purple pants. More like, uh, hey, what would happen if I punched that cat? Oh, yeah, like the how could I get away with murder? I could slit your throat right now. Yeah, but more just more like just it sticks into your head and you're like, where the fuck did that come from? It's like, okay, sorry. At work, I've been reading a lot about serial killers. So that's what no, I This thinking. is not a I know, serial I know, killer I know, thing. I know, I'm just saying. This is just this. a version of an anxiety disorder that causes you even more anxiety because then you're like, what the hell is there in my brain that made me want to punch a cat? And it's not that you want to punch a cat. It's that you're having a thought about the cat being punched. Did you punch a cat today, Josh? The point being, it's a serious disease. Yes. No, I did not punch a cat today. So, tell me the story of the Algonquin. So, the Algonquin is, like I said, rye whiskey, dry vermouth, also known as French vermouth, and unsweetened pineapple juice. God help you if you use sweetened pineapple juice in this drink. 
You stir the ingredients with cracked ice. You do not shake it, however, but then you strain it into a chilled cocktail glass. If you um, if you shake it before you strain it, the pineapple juice gets really frothy. Some people argue that that's good. Some people say that's not good. Orange bitters can also be added to taste, depending on your preference. Uh, this is a beverage that has been called the whiskey martini. So, uh, Josh, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, haven't we had a whiskey martini before something else was called a whiskey martini? That was the Bronx, I think, and that was um, rum, right? Mm. Mm. I, I will say this drink starts better than it finishes. Really? Because I was thinking the opposite. Okay. Mm. Anyway, I just like pineapple a lot. Yeah, but I get the pineapple up front. I get the vermouth in the back. <laughs> All right. So, like Josh referenced earlier, the Algonquin Hotel. Like Josh referenced earlier, the Algonquin cocktail derives its name from the hotel in New York of the same name. It was opened in 1902. The hotel was also home to the Algonquin Round Table. Probably most famous for that at this point. At this point, which hosted uh, a group of then celebrities, today celebrities, I guess. Uh, Celebrity as, writers and funny Known people. as the Vicious Circle for around 10 years. The Vicious Circle was a group of poets, critics, writers, and others who met for lunch every day in the Rose Room at the Algonquin. Um, okay, just wanted to make sure we were still recording. We met every day for lunch in the Rose Room at the Algonquin from uh, about 1919 to 1929. There were numerous members over the years, with some of the most distinguished people being Dorothy Parker, mm-hmm. uh, Pulitzer Prize winner George Kaufman, Edna Ferber, Harpo Marx, mm-hmm. and Tallulah Bankhead, to Benchley. name a few. Yep. The members of the group uh, would eat meat for lunch and exchange quips and insults. They would also... Um, they also influenced each other's work and were accused a couple of times in other organizations of putting forth biased reviews of each other's work to boost themselves. They also met regularly outside of the club to play poker, croquet, charades, parlor games, like murder, that murder game that you always play at church when you're there for a lock-in where you have to try, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll also note that between 19 and 1919 and 1929, that is, in fact, uh, a good chunk of the time of prohibition, so it's unlikely that there was actual Algonquins being had at the Algonquin when they met. Um, although we all know that Dorothy Parker is very fond of martinis. <laughs> this group was also the inspiration for uh, a 1987 documentary, which uh, which is called The Ten Year Lunch, and it won the best it mm-hmm. won Best Documentary Academy Award that year. And a really good uh, Alan Parker movie, yeah. uh, Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. Uh, starring Jennifer Jason Lee and Campbell Scott in a heartbreaking romance. So, you know, last week we had our Clover Clubs. This week we've got the Algonquin Roundtable. It is also, the, the hotel itself is named after the Algon- Algonquin people who lived there before New Yorkers moved in. So that's where the name was. It was going to be called, um, ironically enough, the Puritan. No. Mm-hmm. The hotel or the drink? Um, no, the hotel. and then uh, The Puritan? So, it was going to be called that? I'm pretty sure... Yeah, he was going to originally name it the Puritan, and someone convinced him to change it to the uh, the Algonquin instead. He who? Um, Frank Case, who was um, the owner. Frank Case. Do we, what do we do? We know anything about Frank Case? Uh, what we know about Frank Case is that he bought the hotel and originally intended to um, use the space as apartments, mm-hmm. like hotel luxury apartments. And kind of a flip up, this hotel type situation. And then they ended up turning it into a actual hotel. Mm-hmm. All right. He took over the lease of the hotel in 1907. Again, it was open in 1902. Cool. So what do you think of it? Um, I like it. You said you didn't care for it? Well, or? I like it up front. I like the pineapple part, but I was getting the vermouthy stuff in the back. And, you know, I like my sweet drinks. I think my drink's sweet, and I think it starts sweet and finishes. See, I would disagree. For me, the first thing that I taste is the whiskey, um, the rye. And then as you swallow it, you do get a hint of vermouth. But then it kind of mellows out with the pineapple. Well, whiskey's sweet-ish. Whiskey yeah. plus, you know, whiskey plus pineapple is sweet up front. I'm just saying. Then I get in. It's, you, you it's get the vermouth. vermouth. Yeah, I know. I yeah. don't know why I keep going. But there's so many cocktails. Yeah, and this is not bad actually. And, and again, we've got fresh vermouth, and it's a tasty drink. I, I, on the whole, it's a good drink. I would not turn away uh, an Algonquin. It is a before dinner drink, apparently. Something you. Yeah, I don't get the whole timing of drinks anyhow. I mean, I unless it's like a milkshake. Unless it, yeah, or like or or a grasshopper. Right. Chug a couple of those before your meal. (laughs) All right. Since we have an abbreviated time for the movie and drink, let's move right on into our movie. So, Kate, what uh, unfortunate sequel did we watch this week? Oh, God. Okay. We we watched Basic Instinct 2, Mm -hmm. starring Sharon Stone, Mm -hmm. uh, David Morrissey, Mm -hmm. David 
Thulus. Yeah, I think it's Thulus. It's Thulus or Thulus. We've we've done both on the show um, before. And Indira Varma, and uh, in a very small role, the the sh- other shrink, Catherine. Pardon. The other shrink, Catherine, his friend. Who is that? Oh, it's um, uh, it's Charlotte Rampling. Charlotte Rampling. Yeah, and and uh, and Hugh Dancy. Oh right. Also in a tiny oh ball. right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. The whole movie. That's it. That's they it. just stand in a they single room. room together. Now, this is a movie that. Uh, it's a sequel to what was it, nineteen ninety-one, something like yeah. that. A basic Instinct, in which you may recall, uh, Sharon Stone pl- portrayed a maybe serial killer of multiple people mm-hmm. uh, who lives a dangerous lifestyle and gets mixed up with uh, police investigator Michael Douglas. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a police investigator, right? Yeah, yeah. he's in one of the. Detectives. It's been a long time since I saw this movie. Uh, the Paul Verhoeven movie, uh, a director of some style and note. Uh, it was super successful, and it ended on a cliffhanger in Dun-tun. which we did not know what happened to Sharon Stone's Catherine Trammell. Mm-hmm. So as this movie starts, we're, what, 15 years later, I guess. Although it's never actually explicitly stated in the movie that it is fully 15 years later and that I what think, she's been doing. I think it's in real time. Like, yeah. I think you can assume that she's been writing. Apparently, she moved out of the United States because this film takes place in London for in almost Britain. no reason. Right. Well, it, it has that mid-2000s cool Britannia Tony Blair sheen all over it. Yeah, but Mike, it's, it's a Michael Sheen. It <laughs> also featured in many of those movies. Um, I don't know. It's it, it it didn't make sense to me. Like I understand they probably got like some kind of tax write off for putting mm-hmm. it in Britain or like the crew or something. But it does scream tax incentives. But parts of it look like it was just shot on a soundstage. There's very little. Well, they have those over there, you know. Well, you know what I mean. But if you're Paying for London, use London. I don't know. Anyway, so the movie starts with Sharon Stone driving, excuse me, Catherine Trammell, driving Mm -hmm. in her Spider X super fast Mm -hmm. automobile with a uh, football player, that's soccer, in the passenger seat. (laughs) And um, football, the Spanish word for waterfall. Exactly. Um, He's driving. Which is weird because soccer is the Russian word for football. Really? No. So, she's driving the car, uh, racing through the midnight streets of London. Yeah, he's clearly, they're clearly, like, on drugs and something's going on. And then uh, she grabs his hand and starts using his finger to stimulate to herself. To enjoy her own business, yeah. Uh, managing to reach the climax of orgasm. Just as. Just as she drives the really fancy car off a bridge into the river, Thames. Mm. She gets out. She leaves him there to die. She pulls an old Teddy Kennedy. Oh, oh, oh. I, I didn't do it. Was Kate. he reaching orgasm at the time? Well, no, but he left a girl to, to die in a car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so as... Uh, people forget about that, or maybe they don't. I don't know. Maybe people your age. I don't know. When I was a kid, it was like, that was you'd said Ted and Kennedy, I remember and the people first made like, sounds. Oh, God. I remember the first time someone told, I think my mom said, oh, you know, he killed that girl. I was like, what? Like. Yeah. Well, he didn't, you know. Reach his hands around her neck. He just drove a car off a bridge well, and then didn't report to the police until the next day. Herein lies the difference between uh, a fictional character is that actually... Like a responsible citizen goes to the police. No. Uh, she actually... I mean, we don't know this because she never explicitly says it, but I'm pretty sure she drove the car off the bridge on purpose. Well, certainly she was not uh, paying due attention to the rules of the road. So she uh, is taken in for questioning to the police. Mm-hmm. The police instructor, instructor, investigator in her case is uh, David Thulis. Thulis. Thulis Thulis. Thulis Thulis. And um, she basically... I hate when I'm Thulis. I, I like to have at least three or four Thuls. They find drugs in the car, like, you know, some kind of like creepy like horse tranquilizer. Yeah, it's like a rare and, like, drug. And again, this and... is the beginning of a really needlessly complicated plot that is... Uh, Almost impossible to follow. Wouldn't yeah. you say that? I mean, it's it is. I mean, the, super complicated. It's an excuse to have her under suspicion from the police right. for a variety of things. She doesn't really do anything to help herself out because she just keeps getting right. into shit. And it's meant to be some sort of. It's meant to be a sort of mousetrap plot. And it's where not. it all comes, I mean, you know, crashing down at the end. And you're it like, does. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It does come crashing down, but you're like, dude, I see. I've seen this coming from the first movie. Or it's just so completely seen, bizarre because you've seen the first movie. Anyhow, so, anyway. right? Yeah, exactly. You've seen the first movie, so it's like. What are you going to do? Yeah, so they the court orders her to be evaluated by a shrink who's played by... The horribly miscast David Morrissey, yeah. who is a fine actor, I think. Mm-hmm. But 
you wouldn't know it from this movie because I, I think he really does not look like he wants to be here. And my, given my understanding of the casting history, he was like 19th choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. was a, was actually one of the original people. But, yeah, there's a long yeah. list of people. There's a ton. Who were considered after, after Michael Douglas turned down. Yeah, said no. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she goes to the shrink to evaluate. Um, he concludes that she has like risk seeking disorder or some shit yeah, risk addiction i believe and which was a subtitle of the motion picture in some markets basic instinct to colon risk addiction <laughs> um all the while she she, she Su- susan sarandon jesus sharon stone um stands trial she's let go he yeah he he does an analysis of her and then he says i think she's got risk addiction but i don't think she uh she killed it willfully it killed anybody yeah you know, david morsey has a somewhat interesting and by interesting, I mean needlessly plot-involved personal yeah. life. He has an ex-wife, played by Indira Varma, who mm-hmm. is clearly like a recent ex-wife, because they have something of a close relationship. Yeah, and Sharon and Stone does this thing when she meets him goes, you're divorced, aren't you? And he's like, what? How do you know? And she's like, you've still got the tan line on your finger. Yeah, but she call, first of all, she calls it a ring line. A because, ring line on your Because finger. no English people have tans. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't think that's a real thing. I mean, I think it would be I mean, a real thing. People who tan have but those. I think it would be a real thing, but you would get over it fairly quickly. They've clearly been divorced longer than a day. Like, you know, like right. it's gone through. Right. And there's not a lot of sun in Britain, but I th- would imagine there's enough to, you know... And uh, his office is also in the gherkin, so you know he's getting a lot of sunlight right. through those windows. Which is a uh, absurdly uh, overblown glass sheathed modern, modern style penis. building. Um, what? Well, they call it the gherkin because it looks like a big pickle, big glass what? pickle. What? Pickle. Pickle, pickle. Okay. Um, and so she eventually. So, so he's got Indira Varma. He's also got a history of there's some, he's haunted by a case in his past. Yeah, because he he had a patient who seemed the the patient was. He, he testified that the patient didn't seem violent, and then he seemed yeah he had a patient who didn't seem violent, and then the, or then the patient like went on a killing spree right, right? or something, right. and so everyone's and like how did you not know? And he's like I didn't know, I didn't know, and everyone's like how could you not know? Right. And David I didn't know. and David Thewlis was involved in this case somehow, and sort of uh, in addition to Hugh Dancy, who is a reporter who is uh, tracking down this case details of this case and i'm never quite clear on what the details but also it has something to do with these horse tranquilizers that were well, found in her yeah, car well, you get you get a you get the sense that there was a huge scandal and so you know hugh dancy is like a tabloid writer or mm-hmm. a magazine writer so he's just trying to stir up the fire there and if the plot is already completely incomprehensible don't worry because that is uh the experience of watching the movie it only the only purpose of this is that it serves to have a, a small chink in david morrissey's armor i guess that she can then manipulate and pry i guess but it's is also what it's trying to do well okay so so much of this movie and we'll discuss a scene that is redolent of this fact later on but so much of this movie like you can see the screenplay happening and it's just <laughs> no seriously it, it, it seems like like, you know, a screenwriter was like, I got to have uh, a sketchy history from the past. I got to have obscure Demons. drugs. I got to have kinky sex. I gotta, and they like and they all got to meet in a, a mousetrap surprise twist ending. And it's like instead of thinking about, you know, the elements and what they would it, it doesn't seem cause it's a reverse causality thing. The whole movie feels worked backward instead of worked forward, which is why it makes no sense when you experience it moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Hugh Dancy is this magazine guy. He's dating my Dr. Michael Glass, who is played by David Morrissey. Wait, he's dating, Hugh Dancy is not dating him. I know. He's dating Dr. Glass's right. ex-wife, Indira Barma. And he is a magazine reporter for one of these magazines that I did not know exist, that uh, in addition to the subject of cover magazine profile stories, puts a big picture of the reporter <laughs> right there with it. It's like, it's, hey, this story reported by pasty Hugh Dancy. It's it's a British thing, actually. You know it, how they do things Nothing Europe. moves newspapers. Nothing moves magazines like pictures of reporters. Well, when they look like you dancey. You're looking at all reporter meat right here, baby. Girl, did you see that green scarf? <laughs> this is really ugly green scarf for no reason. Yeah. Like and in this movie There's a reason that Playboy doesn't have like, you know, reporters of the Big Ten. Of the movie. <laughs> In this movie, the way that it's shot so that literally everything is in tones of orange or blue. Yeah, well, that's and the other thing. then Hugh Dancy is wearing this giant green, like, emerald scarf. It really sticks out. Yeah. And it's like, why isn't it blue? Like, that's one p- thing I wanted in this movie to match the color scheme. Well, you mentioned the color scheme. Yeah. It, it, this is one of those movies from... And it sort of hit its peak, I think, in the mid-2000s. I think it's going somewhat moving away from it now, but I don't know. But after digital color correction in movies became so big, after, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and stuff, Mm -hmm. there became this trend toward pushing everything toward one of two extremes, which is 
all sort of light tones become orange and all sort of dark tones become like gunmetal gray or teal. Because they're on opposite sides of the color right. wheel. And the idea is they're complementary, so the eyes like, ooh, they're complementary. But then you end up with like, every human being looks like Snooky and every every road and every street looks like it's seven o'clock in September. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's once you start noticing it, you see it everywhere in movies. Yeah, and this movie has it uh, par excellence in, in spades. So David um, David Morrissey is convinced into taking Sharon Stone on as a regular client for Which, some yeah. reason. Well, he tries to fob her off on Charlotte Rampling. Yeah, and who then, is also a therapist. And then she's like, "Well, I don't want to be someone's seconds or something." I don't something. know. I don't know. He takes her on for absolutely no reason other than plot, and and then she we're, starts, and we're told that he's attracted to her, which is not shown by any chemistry between the two. They have no chemistry whatsoever. Any sense of sex that is coming from this movie is from Sharon Stone's dialogue, which is like, I know you picture me. (laughs) I know you think about fucking me, doctor. How would you do it? And like stuff like that. And And um, none of it is like titillating at all or even like it comes over as a little sad, but it comes over a little sad in the sense that like you're watching Sharon Stone try really hard to sort of conjure up some sexy magic. And she's a, you know, she is a charming lady. I truly believe that Sharon Stone is a charming lady. She's, you know, not a super wide range as a performer, but she's an appealing and, you know, she's working very hard here to try and be sexy with, it's just not, there's nothing going on. It's not her fault. You know, she's an attractive lady, you know, 47, which was really unfair when this movie came out. People were like, ooh, it's an old lady. A lot of 47 people having awesome sex out there. Yeah. You know. And she looks great, but the the outfits that they put her in do no they make no sense. They don't do yeah. anything. She's hardly ever wearing a bra. And like it, it to me it comes off as sad. Like it comes off It comes off as they're really trying to make this movie sexy when there is like no it's like a sex free it's let me put it to you this way. Uh THX eleven thirty eight Mm-hmm. is a body French farce of sexuality compared to this movie. <laughs> okay? This movie is so sterile and, like, there's nothing London. sexy. London, right? the blue and the it orange. It is blue and sterile and glass and the like, sex the original, just looks sad. The original one was in California, right? Like, San yeah. Francisco? Mm-hmm. Like, see, that feels steamy because you know they're in somewhere where it's hot and, like, you know, you can really, you really, they really right. go out of their it's way to the bay. sweat and, like, the... The cloisterness, everything like that. This is London. I'm not thinking about... Well, I'm not saying you can't be sexy in London. I'm saying you can't be sexy in this London. Yeah. You know. All right. So anyhow, through a series of things, uh, Hugh Dancy dies, is murdered in Indira Varma's apartment. He's uh, he's suspected of the murder because he is the ex-husband. And because he stupidly just randomly shows up at the crime scene. Because Indira Varma calls him over. And anyway, so he's suspected. David Toulis is kind of like watching him. All this other shit starts to go down. Indira Varma... Like has an affair with a girl or something. Or starts is seeing Sharon Stone maybe, too. Maybe, maybe, yeah. and so like she ends up with her throat cut in the middle of a lesbian club in the bathroom. Right. He's blamed for that too. Um, Meanwhile, the, there's this investigation on this case that's still ongoing. With her, he still continues to see her in his office. Right. She starts to make him think that David uh, Thulis was uh, a crooked cop who uh, in some way was involved in both... First of all, it makes him think that he David Thulis was involved in these murders, in mm-hmm. killing Hugh Dancy. And also involved in the murder of his former patient, like, right. and used it as an excuse to cover his own ass that he's crooked. Right. At some point in this, uh, Hugh Dan- uh, David Morrissey goes on a sexual adventure that apparently has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, except is meant to ratchet up his sexual depravity. First of all, he uh, buys one. a bunch of her kinky books. He, well, he's reading her books, I guess, to get into her mind. Right. I don't know. And there's a scene of him like in a bookstore holding like 10 books and he's already halfway through the first one standing right. and in line. He's reading it and you're hearing this scene described of, ooh, they pulled the hair and stuff. And I'm that. looking there watching it and I think I said this to you, Josh. I was like, why wouldn't you just stay in the bookstore yeah, and finish the, the book? Library. Why are you going to buy I mean, buy he's a conscientious patient, patron. So. Anyway. But anyway, so then later you see him reenacting the scene with this girl that he picks up at a party. Yeah, while watching, right. watching, there's a, the book is cracked open on the bedside table and Sharon right. Stone's picture is on the right. back jacket. Meanwhile, David Morrissey is very kind of disturbingly fucking this girl from behind. And he looks at it to get hard because he tells her to turn over <laughs> so yeah. he can look at it. And then and, and then anyway. at some point he has sex with Sharon Stone, even though like he goes to her and apartment to tell her to stop messing with him. That's supposed to be like the forgive me, the climax of the movie of sorts, right? right? Uh, like, like he, you know, she, he's convinced that she's messing with him and he goes there to tell her to stop and then they have sex. Uh, yeah. 
you know, for some reason. Also, I'm given to understand that in 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 uh, an earlier unexpurgated version, he rapes her, oh. which is completely edited out of the movie. Well, good. Yeah, which also I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't understand his character to begin with because no. it's barely there. But that didn't. Anyhow, there's a scene where he uh, actually fulfills the uh, fantasy of having the sexy barista. <laughs> yeah, and that's another one of these. Back. Like you can see the screenwriter just make. Eh, what if that? Oh, Julie, I it. see her every day at the Starbucks. What if she n- noticed I wasn't feeling good and wanted to have and sex? And so she back comes over and, and she's like, "Are you okay?" And then the next shot is him just yeah. thrusting. I bet into there's her. a sexy fuck sofa in the back of every Starbucks for sexy baristas. <laughs> <laughs> Named so, Julie. You know, shut up, you stupid screenwriter. So you see that happens. Eventually, um, he's in a struggle at home where David Toulis comes to well, no, know. No, 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 no. Yeah, okay, okay, so no. So he uh, is at Sharon Stone's uh, place. Is it post coedly or has he b- stolen the copy of the manuscript? She slips him one. She oh, slips right. him a CD and says, like, to Michael, love Sharon or right, and like, so the book indicated the, and you know, previously we've established that all of her books are based on murders that she probably did. So in the book, it's intimated that uh, David Thewlis has k- killed all these people. That uh, or the, no, no, that she has killed all these people, but that David Thewlis was a crooked cop, but that, that she's going to go kill Charlotte Rampling, who is his friend and colleague, right? For they, some reason, they get there. He he goes to stop her. Right, he, he goes over to Charlotte house. Rambling's house. Charlotte, She's there with Charlotte Rambling, and Charlotte Rambling's like, "She told me everything. She told me you're a crooked uh, psychiatrist. You'll never practice again. You've been sleeping with your patient. You've been sleeping you need with your help, patient. All this stuff. You know. Well, yeah, and uh, David uh, Thulis shows up, and Sharon Stone says, "You know, he was responsible for one of the murders that." the guy seven years ago got convicted of and he did it just so that he could get that guy convicted he 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 lied and murdered to get your patient convicted and that's what's been haunting you for all all these years they get into a struggle with a gun david thulis gets shot david thulis says you know she's lying this is the only chance you're gonna have to kill her and then he dies but before he can grab the gun and kill sharon stone the police show up and wrestle him to the ground and he's gives this really (laughs) really Weird moan of just like. I kept thinking, you know, I kept thinking of Olivia de Havilland in the swarm. Oh, and we didn't, we didn't go to the only enjoyable part of this line is David Thewlis. David Thewlis has a read about uh, two thirds of the way through the movie when he's He's, trying to ascertain what happened on the night that uh, Hugh Dancy Dancy was murdered, which has happened to be the same night that he brought the girl home and. I had sex with her while looking at the cover photo of Sharon Stone. Yeah, he actually interrupts the sex to go answer the phone, which seems like something... I mean, maybe he would do that, but I wouldn't do that. I don't know. So, anyhow. um, So, he's uh, he's banging this chick from behind or whatever. But no, and David Thewlis starts questioning him about it. He's like, well, he's like, I went to a work function and, you know, had a few drinks. He's like, what'd you do after that? And he's like, well, I went home. What'd you do after that? And then finally, David Morrissey snaps and says something like, I was fucking a girl on my knees for all night or something. And David Thewlis has the best line read in the entire movie. He cocks his eyebrow. Do do, do, do it again. Do the David Morrissey again. Okay. It's imperative that you cock your eyebrow when you deliver this line. Okay. I was at home fucking a girl on my knees. On your knees, I... <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it's like two seconds of a movie, but David Thewlis going, on your knees, eh? Is the best thing in the movie by a mile. So uh, David Thewlis is dead. Sharon Stone gets, uh, Sharon Stone does not get shot. Charlotte Rampling is alive. Uh, although, oh, she has been knocked on the head in uh, a struggle also. So it, yeah. it looks like she might die. So then she flash forward to, we're not sure how much later. Yeah. Uh, Sharon Stone comes to visit David Morrissey in a mental institution. He's sitting mm-hmm. in a wheelchair and yeah. doesn't speak. And making these weird, like, drool cup faces. A, like a face that I uh, can only compare, like we said, to uh, Oliver Reed in Burnt Offerings when, when he's, he's in that wheelchair trying to get up and can't. And he's making, like, faces. Yeah. So Sharon Stone says, uh, you know, I wrote a new ending on this book. And it turns out, according to Sharon Stone in the book, now we don't hear anything from David Morrissey, that David Morrissey snapped at some point earlier in the movie and all these murders were actually committed by him in a And they're shown in like a montage flashback. So we have a montage of of things that, by the way, we as the audience never saw, which if this actually happened and isn't just her spinning a tale, it's totally cheating. You're not allowed to do that as a movie maker. Yeah. Uh, And it's kind of... It's left kind of open, I thought. Like, she, she whispers it, she leans in and whispers to him, come back. So, yeah, and then she comes back, smoking a cigarette, and then that's the end. And he gives this sort of face of, like, it could either be a face of, like, where she's lying about me, or it could be a face like, she understands me and knows my crazy. And, and that's it, so. Yeah. Yeah. So, basic instinct two. Were it a cocktail? Oh, Jesus. What would it be? Okay, so, 
Mine's not a cocktail. It's an alcoholic beverage. Okay. To me, this movie is like the beer that's been left in the back of your fridge and like you forgot that it was there and then one night you're rooting around and you find it and you're like, shit, I didn't know I had some rolling rock in here and you mm-hmm. pull it out and you look at the expiration date and it's off. Not only that, you it's don't not know. even beer, it's just soy sauce. And you don't <laughs> you don't recognize that the expiration date is wrong until it's too late and you've already taken a huge swig and you're just like, my God! And of course you drink this out of a blue glass <laughs> just to color the orange right. of the beer. Well, that was my, mine was going to be, it's a, a commemorative, a orange plastic commemorative uh, London Olympics plastic cup okay. filled with blue curacao liqueur. We really kind of went in the same... Ugh. We did. Oh, that sounds disgusting. Indeed. Cool. So if the Algonquin were a motion picture, okay. what would it be? All right, so bear with me on this. Okay. To me, it is like it starts out very strong, but there is something kind of disjointed about its tone as it... Mm-hmm. As it moves from hotel to to beverage, mm-hmm. so bear with me on this, Josh. Okay. I'm gonna see this movie's like it's like a movie musical mm-hmm. where like you know I feel like there's very few good movie musicals out there. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard to adapt it to the genre. So what specific movie? I'm thinking um, South Pacific because of the pineapple juice. Ooh, but you that's can scary. you can that's argue good. with me on that if you want. But like yeah. the pineapple and the whiskey, I don't know. They're good, but it's Bali. Uh, I was gonna say. Gonna watch that. Man, right yeah, out yours of is a little better than mine. I was just gonna say because it starts like you think it might be a crazy fun drink because you're like whiskey, pineapple, what the what? Uh, and then <laughs> I didn't like it after that initial taste because I was like, this is going on too long. This drink, and then the vermouth snuck up on me. So <laughs> vermouth. And also, by way of tying it into our movie that we watched, uh, the movie I'm picking is a David Thewlis vehicle, which is nice. the Island of Doctor Moreau oh. movie with Mar- Marlon Brando and uh, and uh, Val Kilmer. Damn it, yours is so much better than mine. Which starts off. Like you're like this is gonna be crazy awesome fun, and for like the first twenty minutes you're like this is crazy, this is great, and then two hours later you're like what the living <gasps> fucking fuck? <laughs> oh god! So hey, we already played our Would You Rather because we played it with Sarah and we, we saved it for the end of the show, so we're gonna play that now. Okay. All right. Okay, Kate, did you want to do one of yours or did you want to do one of mine? Sure, I'll do one of mine. Okay. Okay, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Would you rather? Eat a pound of cheese, but Steve Buscemi is watching you the entire time. Mm-hmm. Or be stuck in an attic, flowers in the attic style, with the lead singer from Nickelback. I would eat the cheese um, okay. with Steve. However, I would really like to put in a request that the cheese be feta okay. or... You know, or if I could have like something else with the cheese, like some water even would be helpful. But I would do a Steve Buscemi uh, cheese situation. Okay, you got time for one more? Yeah, sure. Would you rather Mm -hmm. uh, live the rest of your life uh, without the use of sheets or blankets or uh, live the rest of your life with uh, a pimple right in that spot on the edge of your lip, between your lip and the skin, where it's really, really painful. Rest of your life. Oh, I would go without sheets and blankets. Because there's always, I can always just move to a really warm place. Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. She's better at this than you are, Kate. I was, my solution was to train cats to stay on my body at all times. But No, that's, that's solid, man. I like that. That's a great idea. Or I could make my dog just snuggle with me all the time. Well, that was my other one was, would you rather live in a world without dogs or, or antibiotics? Oh, that's interesting. Um, without dogs, because I love my dog, Morley Safer. She's really wonderful. But I really hate yeast infections. And so yeah. I going to say that I would be fine without dogs. We can always domesticate something else. Like, there has to be some kind of pig that hasn't been domesticated yet, and I'll hang out with it. Your dog is named Morley Saver? Yeah, my dog's named Morley Saver. Is that like a really natty bow tie and pocket square? She just mostly is a Canadian Jew who enraged enraged Lyndon Baines Johnston (laughs) for her early reporting on Vietnam. that's yeah, wonderful. She's great. My boyfriend was like, she looks like Morley Safer. And I was like, I think you mean Andy Rooney, but I Andy Rooney. May he rest. I think he's dead. May he yes. rest. But um Morley Safer, big fan, so I just let him go with Morley Safer. I was like, Yeah, let's name her Morley Safer. Sarah Bennett Costa, thank you very much for being our first guest ever on this oh, show. Of course. Thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate it, Josh and Kate. Thank you so much. I am eternally grateful. Thanks a bunch. Bye. Bye bye. 
All right. I think that's going to wrap it up. Wasn't Sarah wonderful? Yes, very much so. I'm Again, still astonished that you. she was on our show. Yes. All right. As always, you guys can reach us on Twitter at, at @pntcast. Our email address is pntcast at gmail.com. On Tumblr, we're pntcast.tumblr.com. You can look for us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pntcast or just search for Prefer Not To. And we have our new website, which is www.preferNotTo.com. You were saying, Kate? I'll say if you follow us on Facebook, you'll get exclusive Prefer Not To content, which is basically pictures of our cats and funny links for fans of the show. And Kate... Uh, having a freak out last winter when she thought she saw a Cloverfield monster in our parking lot. Uh, what show was that? Did we say? We I remember? think it was the Cloverfield show. Well, what, what beverage? <laughs> whiskey Sour. Is the Whiskey Sour show, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So as usual, I've loved spending an hour of time with uh, Sarah and our friends and listeners and you. Oh, that's sweet. And I hope people want to do it again uh, next week. Next week is a special show. It's always a special show, isn't well, it's it? it's a very special show. Oh, it's our 50th show. show. It's yes. show 50. Yes. All right. All right. Well, tune in then. Yeah. Thank you for listening. One hair beard. Old one hair. <laughs> Old one hair. I, I, yeah, I would imagine there are a lot of people who are close to death who have very few hairs. That's why they call you Old Red Hair. Is it red hair or one hair? Oh, one hair. Okay. You know, if it's one red hair, it's actually probably going to be t- difficult to tell what color it is. One hair. Oh, one hair. The red, perhaps? Ooh, like one a hair, Viking, the red. Yeah. Like a Viking? Yes. That'd be good. Yes. Yes.